Welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. This month on the podcast, we'll be hosting a series of discussions produced in collaboration with Repeater Books. Repeater Books is a radical publisher based in London and founded in 2014 by Tarek Goddard and the late Mark Fisher. And they publish works across many fields and disciplines, including cultural criticism, political theory, philosophy, and literature, to name but a few. So throughout March, we'll be bringing together authors from across the two presses to talk about their work. The first of these conversations, which you're listening to now, features Matt Colhoun and Thomas Moynihan, who will be discussing extinction, apocalypse, capitalism and hope, amongst many other things. Matt Colhoun is the author and editor of two books with Repeater, Egress and Post-Capitalist Desire, both of which examine and expand upon the work of Mark Fisher, he also writes frequently on his blog, Xenogothic, and co-hosts the podcast, Buddies Without Organs, in which he explores the work of Deleuze and Guattari with Sean Pierce and Corey J. White. Matt will be speaking to Thomas Moynihan, who is the author of two books, Spinal Catastrophism and X-Risk, which were both published with Urbanomic, who are distributed by the MIT Press. Tom is currently producing research as part of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, and he's interested in the history of existential risk and hope. Specifically, in his most recent book, he's writing about how humanity produced the forms of knowledge that allowed it to contemplate its possible extinction. So, with introductions out of the way, I'll now hand over to Matt and Tom. I should say I've just been reading Egress. That's my book. Exorcist. <laughs> similar, <laughs> similar sounding names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've just been reading them last week. Like uh, I didn't get a chance to earlier, and it's so good. I'm really enjoying it. And I've got like uh, I ended up just writing down a bunch of questions for you <laughs> that like happy to jump into. Or but I think maybe there's a space for some sort of common ground. But I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were maybe initially or yeah. Yeah. So I um I've just just been reading today your introduction to uh, post-capitalist desire and i've dipped into egress uh, in the past so and i can see i can see that there's there will be because we i mean there is there are points uh there are definitely points to contact i mean obviously there would be because we have kind of similar what's the word that isn't horribly pretentious intellectual gen- genesis <laughs> something like that so yeah I, there'll obviously be points of overlap and uh, i think yeah, yeah, I'm very glad to hear that you have some questions because uh, yeah, we should we probably should have had a chat beforehand. <laughs> so you've sa- saved our bacon a little bit there, but um, I guess maybe if you start off with those and then see 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 how it naturally flows. But I'm sure you know there's kind of the main thing I'm thinking of is the the kind of mental health asteroid chapter in egress is you know there's kind of end of the world stuff going on there. So yeah, I'm sure will kind of it'll, it'll hopefully naturally coalesce into something so yeah yeah okay cool well that is good because that's kind of yeah where I, I sort of felt like there was yeah maybe that's a good first point of contact yeah maybe as a way to at least i preface my side of it and i can ask you a direct question because i feel like one of the things that i really want to try and do with my book at least was it was trying to grapple with these different senses of ending 
whether that's like on a personal sense and in the sort of the death of someone that you know, or that kind of imaginative, yeah, cataclysmic world ending grief and how we're the, the both of those two things kind of come together and how one can help us grapple with the other or even, or, you know, or, or vice versa. And I guess the most obvious place for starting, at least in thinking about Mark's work with that, would be that famous phrase, the end of the world is easy to imagine the end of capitalism. And I kind of really liked how in your book, you really, right at the very start, you kind of emphasise that distinction that I think maybe gets lost a lot between apocalypse and extinction with one having like the you know the, the apocalypse having more religious connotations being about a specific kind of unveiling not so much that yeah that things come to an end but what is unveiled by like, I like the way that you put it where it's like there's a sense of an ending and the ending of sense and that sense of an ending can actually be quite it feels like a really I don't know if, if that's your coinage or if that came from somewhere else but it feels like a really nice quite gentle <laughs> that you just just the sense of something but anyway I guess that my specific thing I wanted to ask you in reading your book and sort of thinking about Mark's work, at least especially, is a point regarding imagination, where you kind of, you, you're giving a very, a, a, a very elaborate and thorough history of kind of like the idea of the end of the world. But what do you see as the, maybe the, the positives and negatives of that kind of being able to imagine extinction? It's as, as opposed to apocalypse, like, you know, when, if we can imagine the end of the world, but we can't imagine a new beginning, maybe if that's you know, the, another way of phrasing Mark's questions, precisely that, right? We can imagine the end, but we can't imagine a new beginning. So I guess, like, how does that factor in for you in your understanding of the importance of the questions that you're kind of asking and exploring? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. To begin with, I wanted to point out, because um, you, you, you brought up the sense of an ending, and just answer the kind of uh, sub-question on that. Um, so that's actually, it's a term from uh, Frank Commode. Uh, so he had this book, A Sense of an Ending, and it's a kind of grand history of how millennium and apocalypse appears in kind of different cultural artifacts from, you know, literature, myth, or, or, or you know, the whole caboodle. So it's like, it's, it's, this, it's one of the kind of great histories of thinking about the end. But I wanted to, you know, as you kind of point out, I wanted to really cleanly, crisply distinguish what I'm trying to pursue from that because there's so many histories of thinking about the end in terms of a sense of an ending. You know, it's like how how does thinking about this apocalyptic kind of you know finality give us meaning in the present? It's the kind of prevalent way of thinking about this, I think, um, in philosophy theory. You know, the kind of humanities more generally. You know, it's it's trying to search for some kind of meaning. But yeah, I think this is interesting because, particularly in like continental uh, post post kind of sixty eight post structuralist uh, stuff, there is this kind of tendency to like, or basically like not think about pure terminality. And you can see why because of the preoccupation with like difference and production, you know, production. So like, there's this uh, there's a, a couple of Derrida essays. And kind of written in this Cold War context. So, you know, you can see why Doomsday was obviously a theme back then. But they like intentionally, I think, and purposefully, and it's part of what makes it interesting, is that intentionally kind of conflating, you know, endings to kind of moments of production, um, etc. So Derrida didn't want to think about like the the absolute end. He wanted to kind of think about like the interminability of like uh difference and signification. And so I think that kind of blocks you from like thinking about what we now think of as like this kind of scientific naturalistic idea of extinction as somehow actually terminal. 
So kind of with an awareness of that tradition, uh, not just that being the only place where I see this, but just kind of broader culturally, like even when we think about cinema and Hollywood, you know, people often like talk about extinction being this like big theme topic in, in Hollywood. I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I can't actually think of any big blockbuster films that actually dis- depict like the extinction of humanity entirely, and like no observers being around afterwards. Because, ob- I mean, for obvious reasons, it would make for like quite a boring film, wouldn't it? Like halfway through, all humans disappear, and then it's just like a long shot of like, I don't know if you know some wasteland. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to see that film. So. I think this kind of this this persists culturally in a lot of places. So yeah, part of the reason of what I wanted to do with the book is, I guess, there's something kind of weird in, in writing a history of thinking about the future. Because often thinking about extinction, we're thinking about the long term future, at least historically. So kind of there is more impending reasons to worry now, perhaps more than uh, say a hundred years ago. By tracing through that history, I can like really kind of again, crisply point out this core distinction between thinking about a sense of an ending versus thinking about the ending of sense. So like one of the ways, of, yeah, it's like kind of, we've got to this stage where we can clarify and distinguish these concepts enough that, you know, I can then, you can then look back and see, oh, these are all the places where people weren't thinking about this new thing. And that gives us a kind of cleaner sense of what that distinction actually is. It felt like such a fascinating... I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious that my own brain's still trying to work through it because I think it's like the, I was actually reading alongside your book, this book by um, Brian Clegg. Uh, it's like a, it's a brief history of infinity, which felt like a really nice counterpoint in a way where he kind of goes right back to like the pre-Socratics and he's kind of talking about, I mean, it, it kind of, it led, it, I kind of went there from your, your own, but where you talk about like the principle of plentitude and there's so many different ways of framing it. I guess it's where it kind of is both, I find it difficult to talk about and also so interesting at the same time because you can just yeah you can limit to that cultural sense where you can kind of say well yeah things things just happen things just die back and grow back and everything you know we kind of maybe get the sense that there's this we're, we're sort of living in a time of diminishing returns maybe or something but we've always like when you actually think about that as like an injunction in every day it's quite extreme but that sort of yeah that is very much sort of the stakes of things right and I kind of liked how even though <laughs> this, I guess there's maybe, I wonder how you wrestle with this because there's, there's, there's a very clear thread of hope in your book, despite its subject matter. And I maybe wondered how you, like, if you could expand on that a bit, like how you can actually focus on sort of telling that story, but the, the readers of your books are sort of in possession of so many of the facts, but without turning it into like a, it's not like a moral crusade on your part, which I find also really interesting. So I wondered, yeah, how you kind of balance those things out and, why actually you think there's such a you know why you didn't just write another book about because i guess they're all the rage right too some sort of another ecological piece about how we need to save the animals which we should but like i guess there's you know how how you balance that trajectory yeah i really think we should save the animals so i think in my kind of (laughs) hierarchy of values like kind of just biodiversity for its own sake is really high up and so like the whole kind of like human loving might come out as a theme of the book and yeah it is yeah it might seem like those things are in contradiction. I think a lot of the discourse at the moment always kind of, it, it, we're either anthropocentrists or, or, or not. And I think it's more complicated than that. And to kind of, to kind of explain that by way of touching on one of the, the, the other things you raise is, you know, this question of mattering and, you know, what matters in the, what emerges from this story is mattering in a, in a kind of novel way after kind of stepping through the step by step, the, this history of thinking of, of, about 
I guess, yeah, like humanity's fate in the broadest possible sense of the term within a kind of naturalistic, desacralized setting. When, when it comes to morality or ethics or however, whatever word you want to use to describe the kind of thing that we all know I'm talking about there, we don't often think about how that gels with the widest possible picture. So we, we often think of those things as quite parochial. And there's obviously like good reasons for that, pragmatic reasons. We often think of morality as like this very localized thing because it's all about, often it's you're thinking about what I should do, what would be virtuous for me to do, or what's wrong for my partner. You know, what's so wrong that like they've just done? You know, it's that kind of like very local thinking. But I think it can all be put into relief by thinking about things in the biggest possible picture. So that, you know, to go back to this infinity point, is infinity has this like really interesting property of like destroying our moral intuitions and this raises its head in a lot of different places pascal's wager is like probably the most famous one the promise of infinite value kind of destroys uh intuition but then there's this like historically even more prevalent one which yeah as you point out you know the principle of plenitude which is basically just this idea that if something can happen it will and this kind of gels with infinity a lot because you know if we presume that the universe is infinitely large or infinitely long then everything that will happen will happen and not just once or twice or a few times or many times but infinitely many times and this has the interesting property of again destroying not just our moral intuitions but like all kind of moral consequences I use the example in the book of like dodos because you know everyone loves dodos but uh you know why bother saving the dodo within our own local vicinity because i know that there'll be like infinitely many other planets with dodos on them not just at the present point of time but like throughout the whole of the future and the whole of the past like no matter what i do i can't affect the kind of total amount of dodos in the universe there'll always be the same amount infinitely many right and obviously that applies to humans as well uh it doesn't just apply to species or natural kinds it applies to value so kind of worldviews with plenitude in them or infinities insulate us from any consequences from our actions. And this can like emerge in two different ways. So like historically, the most prevalent way is like quite a comforting one. It's kind of coddling, I guess. Say if I lose something valuable here or destroy it by accident or intentionally or whatever, it will be re-realized somewhere else, uh, elsewhere, not elsewhere. You know, that's quite a nice thought. And you see it in ancient thinking. You know, I was reading Plato, The Laws, the other day, and he says, oh, of course, because the past is so infinitely long, all possible political formations, uh, institutions have already been tried. And not only that, they've all reached uh, the peak of their possible perfection and the troughs of all possible imperfection and have done so many, you know, infinitely many times. And that's something that Aristotle said as well. Like, it's a quite a common ancient thought. You know, you can find Roman historians saying similar things as well. But basically, like, what that means is like learning something new is just remembering the past, or like being good is just re realizing kind of elder peaks of goodness. There's no going beyond that. There's no kind of, we can't actually affect the kind of aggregate amount of good, goodness in the world. And so that's comforting in a sense. One of the interesting ways it re emerges more recently is the idea that the whole universe is like kind of filled you know, maximally populous. It's filled with like populated, as filled as populated plants as it can be. So if Earth just pops because, of, you know, something like something explodes nearby it big enough to just destroy the whole solar system, it doesn't really matter. So there's this kind of coddling aspect to it. But there are also kind of quite nihilistic versions of this idea as well, is if everything that can possibly happen will happen, then 
everything that I say or think, no matter how stupid or ridiculous or like unjustified, will eventually become true. That formulation of it, uh, and I think you see this kind of a lot when it comes to some interpretations of eternal return and similar ideas to that, is it's like, even though it's not meant to be a comforting thought, it's kind of relinquishes us from all responsibility or like paying attention to whether I'm talking nonsense or not, because like ultimately all of the nonsense will be realized. So it comes in different forms, but yeah, it's, I guess, this, yeah, you know, the story I want to tell is kind of the, the falling apart of that type of worldview and basically, yeah, uniqueness and also unrepeatability when it comes to, you know, our human history makes us matter in a way that I think, you know, is, it's very big picture, but I think once you kind of take it into account, it really does change your outlook. So once you kind of really start to grip, get to grips with the fact the direction of travel for at least the past 100 years has been towards the idea that like, yes, we should take seriously the conjecture that we might be very, very much alone in terms of intelligences within this vast, otherwise silent physical cosmos. Even though that seems so alien, you know, literally quite alien to like what I decide to is the moral action here and now, you know, this morning in some kind of personal interaction. I think nonetheless, you know, it kind of does change your outlook in quite a radical way. Yeah, I always think of the example of talking about infinity in that sense of, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a commitment, right? Like, I guess maybe the most famous thought experiment for thinking about infinity, at least in maybe modern times, is um, like if you have infinite typewriters and infinite monkeys, you produce the works of Shakespeare, whatever else, which, which actually kind of, <laughs> maybe that's how a lot of us feel like under the pandemic, we are just infinite monkeys on typewriters. But I guess that, yeah, the, the, the problem with that as a, as an idea is that it, it precludes the commitment of Shakespeare to like, right. Like, cause if you say, you know, if you, you have infinite monkeys, would you get rid of the, that kind of singular figure who did the work, like you put in the work to do that individually, and so, yeah, having that kind of commitment super important for actually, you know, yeah, you have to have some sort of, and I guess that's the, probably the difficulty is that I guess, I'm sure Shakespeare didn't have that in mind when he got to writing, like you just, you just got to do what you got to do. But maybe that's part of it too. Like, I think that what another thing that I actually want to ask you about was maybe on a, a shared point of our um, the intellectual genesis is the influence of maybe like uh, of Deleuze and Guattari, right? And um, it's something that I guess is, I'm actually curious about not just from your most recent book, but I guess the insane amount of productive writing you've been doing over the past couple of years. And I guess that's, I guess maybe I'm maybe more familiar than most with your trajectory because I guess like we've sort of followed it. Like, you know, you've had the extra risk is, is very recent. You had spinal catastrophism before that. And then even before that, you were somewhat famous for your cosmic dyspepsia series on the vast abrupt. And it's actually thinking of it in that kind of chronological way. Maybe I'll leave it to you to maybe summarize each of those projects. But I kind of was thinking about how relevant they all are to that that kind of thinking, right? So I guess if we're talking about this sense of commitment, that is kind of all the ness- more necessary now. And I guess becoming even more so, I guess, yeah, you can sort of say that that's, that's a fact for, you're talking about Plato, Mentioning the pre-Socratics, I've kind of been thinking loads about like Zeno's paradoxes and thinking about how similar they are to like current questions, like how those questions and those paradoxes continually re-emerge, especially now in terms of like quantum physics and things like that. Like what initially seems like a kind of, in a way, silly, but kind of productive challenge to common sense thinking actually now becomes somewhat of like a truth. 
But, you know, I guess the problem with that kind of thinking over the past sort of 100 years in science and philosophy, I guess, is that you have that maybe that structuralist suggestion, right, that we're all just creatures of language and language has no material relations. So there's no sort of grounding for meaning. And that's not necessarily a relativist point, but you can kind of see how, I guess, Deleuze and Guattari kind of take that backwards and also to its kind of like conclusion, right, that Nietzsche's whole genealogy of morals is kind of doing the similar thing. We are creatures of morality, but what are the material bases for our morals? And I guess they take that very explicitly in that kind of geology of morals chapter of A Thousand Plateaus, where they're kind of trying to, these kinds of strange entangling of like material bases and then the nonetheless contingent and I guess yeah I wondered how much of that what your sense of that is throughout all of the work that you've kind of done recently like from these very sort of theory fictional pieces that deal with the cosmic relevance of PepsiCo and and how like you know it's I actually was I actually put this to our mutual friend Edmund Berger on Twitter the other day because I think someone was he he shared a photo of your book X Risk and was like this is great and someone said yeah but how is it relevant to Pepsi and I thought challenge accepted so you've got like, the gut feeling of cosmic dyspepsia you've kind of maybe got like and I can't and I got a bad feeling maybe and then I was kind of thinking about spiral catastrophism as maybe your uh, maybe this is a terrible coinage or not but a kind of lumbartering phase of grief and then you have like extra risk where you kind of have this like long trees of understanding and like acceptance of these kind of quandaries and it's like you have your own sort of i know it's sort of in the acknowledgement you kind of again you kind of point to you i think your girlfriend and sort of say how the, the, the you, you get this sense of hope despite writing about the end of the world that's both personal but also seems so sort of like you know you're kind of dealing with almost cosmic like a cosmological grief almost that's kind of followed us as a, as a civilization Maybe there's quite a lot of, maybe again, I'm probably asking far too many questions are rolled up into one, but what is it about, do you think that kind of the weirdness of a lot of 20th century philosophy like Deleuze and Guattari that maybe informs what in X-Risk feels like very concrete, universally applicable questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with the Zeno's paradox stuff, just going back to that, that's actually another good example of like infinities kind of screwing up our, you know, nice, rigid intuitions because you know the continuity of the the arrow produces an infinite series so how will it ever reach the target and you're right to say you know that's kind of a in a sense that type of thought has never really left us one of the things that i like has always i've always been interested in is how do you like qualify when a thought is new like when an idea is new you know that's something that really interests me it's like novelty and thinking because it's a lot easier to notice all of the places where perennialism exists, you know, because we're all footnotes to Plato, we're all talk- talking about the same, we're all asking the same questions as Aristotle, you know, and I've had people who say to me like, oh, you know, we don't actually know anything materially more than the ancient Greeks. And, or, you know, even like further back, I've had people say that, you know, the Neanderthals had already done the Copernican revolution, you know, which is an interesting thought, you know. So it's easy to see the perennial aspects in our thinking, but it's really hard to kind of like actually point, pinpoint the, the new things. And one of the things I've been saying a lot recently is it's like, because, you know, it's very easy to point at a steam engine and go, that's a new thing. But it's quite hard to like do that with an idea. But as soon as an idea is understandable, it's so well understood, or it's so, it's already understood so much that like we'll see it everywhere backwards. So, I mean, that's one of the things that really interests me. And so being able to get to grips with that, 
I think you can't just like be because in a sense, Exorist can be read as like quite a progressivist, maybe even Whiggish kind of story. And I think the thing that like makes a story like that, or like, well, I don't know, that ma- allows an outlook to not be entirely progressivist in the bad way. And I would argue that we have made like undeniable intellectual progress, um, insight progress, maybe not moral wisdom progress, maybe not kind of, we're not better beings, much so than we were like, you, you know, we, we can go into the fine structure of progress, whatever. But like Neanderthals didn't know about like black holes, you know, they, they, they didn't know about like, you know, nuclear reactors, like chain reactions, they, you know, exactly. So anyway, you know, to, to kind of robustify, to put it into relief, the idea that we have kind of made these steps in thinking, I think you, you have to have a sense of like extinct ideas. So it's not just like the ideas you know, writing a history of the idea of extinction, I think it would be silly to not also have a sense of all the vast amounts of ideas on the, the tree of ideas, right? Kind of to extend a, the biological metaphor, uh, like completely extinct and extinguished and defunct. Because in terms of the history of bio, biology and the life sciences, understanding of species extinctions came about as, you know, well, about half a century before understanding of evolution. So you have to see like what's dead and what's defunct and extinct before you can kind of put into relief the novelty and the progress. Yeah, I think we need a sense of like extinct ideas as well. So, you know, that's what interests me about things like spinal catastrophism, because it's like, in a sense, like a defunct idea. But I think we shouldn't like think that just because ideas are are, like thrown out the window in the sense of like our serious, voracious, proper right-minded thinking that we should like not pay attention to them. Also, I, I like really like satire so one of the things that like in terms of i think influences in writing that i'm very kind of steeped in is like there's a very specific type of taking the piss that people like jonathan swift and like uh alexander pope and those kind of people did that i've just always loved and i think it's like kind of missing from our culture i i I can't really see many like direct you know attempts to redo stuff like that this kind of satire they did they did was often taking an idea that they didn't like or that they didn't think was useful and like just massively blowing it up and taking it as serious as possible. They'd write these kind of imaginary books based on positions they didn't like or that they thought were ridiculous, but like invest so much energy and time into them. I just find that really cool. I I just love that as as, as an exercise in thinking. So yeah, I mean, the Pepsi stuff, like when I wrote it at the time, it was like, it was like satirical. It was like an, this kind of, you know, you take that idea of kind of accelerationist language and discourse on the more occult end of that end of the theory space and just like see how, how much you can just take it to its most natural conclusion. Cause I guess in a sense, that is kind of the accelerationist impulse, in, you know, in itself. How much can I really write something to make it? so much of the essence of itself that it just goes beyond any kind of like taking itself seriously so i mean i i I just find something fun in that so cosmic dyspepsia and like spinal catastrophism they're very i think they're like satirical and that doesn't i don't think that i think it's wrong to think that satire is inherently denigrating the thing that you're you know i think it can be like playing around with it in a way that if you take it really seriously you're not going to see all of the angles at which you can come at it from so i think in, in that sense they're kind of very they're just they're playful so think of satire as something that's playful rather than always negative or critical, right? They're just playing with an idea that I find really cool. And X-Risk, in a sense, is like, it's got a much more serious point. Like, I, it's, it's kind of the only thing that I've written so far that is like very much like me, my voice, 
rather than me kind of inhabiting someone else's idea space and like having fun in it. Because yeah, spinal catastrophism, that's not my idea. That's the CCRU's idea. It's like Fisher and Land's idea. The same with the Pepsi stuff as well. It, It was kind of like just a meme that emerged naturally through the cave Twitter moment. So it wasn't my, it wasn't my idea. You know, I just was like, let me inhabit this, you know, space and just make it as Baroque and hypertrophied from the inside as possible. So I, as a method, there's something that just attracts me about that. Yeah. It used to be our, it used to be our mantra at art school was that we'd, um, me and my housemates just, just always talk about, we used to always say that we were very serious about having fun. And that was just our mantra for doing everything (laughs) which but i think it's a genuinely good one yeah like because i think a lot of great value can come out of that it is a really interesting thought experiment and i kind of do i guess this is like yeah this is coming up to where we are like totally on this sort of the overlap i guess is that um i mean i really like that sense of an extinct idea and the point at which that kind of when an idea is probably declared dead is when it kind of actually comes alive again and I've kind of been thinking about it very recently because I guess part of like when we first met was online at that time when ex- there was like a new accelerationist blogosphere sort of after the initial sort of yeah phase when people like Mark Fisher were writing in. And then it kind of never recovered from the sort of the way, the way that accelerationism has been used by sort of far-right terrorists in the US. And there was sort of after about 2009 and the Christchurch shootings in Australia, there was a point where that idea, no matter what it might have meant to us, that's very something very different. I guess it should be said, but you know, it didn't matter. It kind of just it, it died a death, and probably necessarily so. And what's interesting, I found since at least since Biden's victory, and since Trump was sort of thrown out, and that moment of what was initially, I guess, at that that point in um, twenty sixteen around Trump's election, which kind of did have that. There was a sort of punk moment. I guess from the right, more most loudly, but it was it was a similar sort of um, letting go of commitment and responsibility in terms of ideas and 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 intensifying them no matter what they were and and having fun with them. And then there was sort of you know that that produced a lot of great generative productive thinking. I think for for a lot of us who were friends, but we kind of also saw the other side of it in a quite sort of horrific way. But anyway, I guess what's interesting is that. I've noticed more recently that accelerationism is kind of coming back around again. People are talking about it in terms they used to regarding a kind of commitment to quite radical change, which I feel like only could have happened when that idea was kind of deemed deceased. And that's, yeah, I kind of get that sense that that's maybe, maybe that is part of that. I don't know, maybe do you see that as part of the hope of your book even actually, that the fact that you've written something so thoroughgoing as part of about extinction, actually, you know, when we have that amount of knowledge about the thing that's supposedly coming to an end or, you know, has already ended. I mean, I guess, again, another tangent is that I think it's something that, what you were saying before about this, this, this fascination with new ideas, I totally share that with you. And I almost, I'm always kind of fascinated by, all the new ideas that come up when someone says something's ended, whether it's Heidegger saying we've reached the end of philosophy or Francis Fukuyama saying we've reached the end of history. And I think that that moment in like 92 with Fukuyama, though it's kind of, it is sort of, it's almost become cliche for how sort of well-known that sentiment is. Sort of feels like that's what gave birth to that kind of punk CCIU moment. Like, well, history's ended, so let's just play around in the ruins and, and generate all this stuff. And then it sort of, you think, well, okay, maybe we need to actually, and there's like this post-punk moment where you kind of, well, you know, what 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 new has been made possible by that kind of relinquishing of responsibility? And it kind of feels like we're maybe in that 
space again. We've had Trump and this relinquishing of responsibility on the right, at least, and this going off in all directions and people sort of just dealing with it because it was... I don't know, like, I guess it's the same in the UK with Brexit. We've sort of had that moment where we've just relinquished responsibility for things. And then despite those things just now being to an extent settled, not well, not settled, but, you know, supposedly done with, we've we've made that decision. Now we've got to, you know, made our bed, we have to lie in it. That itself generates a new kind of commitment, the kind of commitment that wouldn't have been possible without that kind of event happening in the first place. And that totally feels like that's that's the thing that's fascinating most, at least with my own work with Mark stuff. And post-capitalist desire is kind of like a, a great example of that, I think, in, in the way that Mark frames his, his own writing. Because, because I mean, it's it, one of the things that I felt like I had to stress the most in the introduction was that question around accelerationism, because he talks about it so frequently as like the most in, the most important part of his thinking. And to read that now when it's been so denigrated is quite strange, but actually it, it, that contrast makes for like a really generative sort of friction, I think. There's not so much a question in there as I think that that is like, um, I think, yeah, that, that sense of the new and what constitutes the new and what, I mean, I guess that there was a lot of conversation going on about it very recently online, especially after the death of Sophie as well the electronic musician where there was this sense of talking about the, the sort of future music she'd welcomed in through her stuff and now that she's not here anymore that kind of brings up these questions of lost futures and it was the same thing for when mark died you know what is this what, is, what did this person make possible but there's kind of a nice feeling that actually what they've talked about it maybe does have resonances that go back really far that they go yeah go back as far as you know a couple of thousand years into the yeah the, the ancient greece but it's like what even if it's just a new variant or a new sort of take on it, even if it is just additional or kind of recombinant, I guess it's affirming the fact that we could only have produced this variant under the conditions of now. So I wonder, what do you, how, how do you feel about that, I guess? How do you feel about right now? And I wonder how strange it must have been to write your book. And I guess you mentioned this too, right, in the midst of a pandemic. But there's a, is there a sense that you see that now that you've done this, it's opening up these new doors for new kind of thoughts for you or all of us more generally, do you think? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think, I can't remember the timeline. Again, as I said earlier, kind of time during pandemic time is all loopy and weird, isn't it? But um, I think it was very, very early on in the pandemic, I wrote the kind of footnote in the introduction that's like, as I write this, you know, COVID-19 is, is uh, seriously screwing up the world system and killing loads of people. And the, th- the interesting thing now is like, obviously, I, I have no, absolutely no credentials in this vicinity, but I was trying to figure out, and obviously, I was deferring to the, the experts on it, but I was trying to figure out, like, what, you know, is this an existential risk? Because there was a lot of people saying that kind of glibly, not glibly, but just with all kind of words, they enter, they have this life cycle where if they're out of their own success, they come become kind of buzzwordy. And existential risk is, in a sense, has been afflicted by that due to its own success. So I was seeing stuff at the beginning of the pandemic saying that like lockdown is like an existential threat to the hospitality sector. And I was like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> it was like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, right. Okay. But yeah. So it was interesting, you know, at the very cusp of the beginning of the thing being like, cause I was very confident from the very beginning of this COVID-19 well, historically unique tragedy and catastrophe as it is, it's like uh, definitely not on the level of an existential threat very fortunately so so it was it I, it was just interesting writing that footnote at the time and I, I like altered the strength of my kind of credence in that throughout different drafts of that what single footnote so it was like a, a weird kind of 
yeah, but I think you know, I think it, it worked out fine. But yeah, to to, to answer your your more interesting broader question, yeah, I think I mean one of the interesting things that I say I kind of always think about, um, for example, cybernetics is that you know you don't see people talking about it anymore. You don't see like courses on it in universities like barely ever. So there's a sense of like cybernetics like disappeared, but I think it only disappeared because of its success. It became invisible because it basically saturated our worldview, and you know, in a really I mean, of course it would, because it's such a high level kind of theory. It's meant to explain kind of everything in a sense. I think like a similar thing could have happened with accelerationism, because obviously its uptake by the worst, the worst ends of the far right is incredibly unfortunate. And as you say, uh, the word resonated with me, you, you use in the introduction to post-capitalist desire, where you say potentially fatally. I think anyone who has any slight familiarity with that kind of milieu, that 90s milieu from which the term emerged, a bunch of kind of unorthodox, but nonetheless Marxist kind of, you know, academics, anyone who's seriously engaging in good faith is going to know that the term, its uptake by the worst, the worst possible people is, is like a historical contingency, is an accident you know, ex- extrinsic to the, the concept itself in its original sense. So even if we stop using that word because it's been dragged through the muddiest of all mud, you know, it's changed our thinking nonetheless. So like you think of like the really productive strains of people who are still extruding that line of thinking, you know, like yourself, like, you know, Wolfendale, like, uh, you know, Shinek, like, you know, they're, they're, even if they're not still using the term ELAC, it's still very, it's still created a really important tone shift on the left, you know, like Novara Media as well. Like, I, th- I think even though he might not admit it, Aaron Bustani is very much like a part of that, that moment as well. So yeah, I think even if the word has disappeared from view, I think it's, it's, it's almost because it's done its work in a sense, if you, if you know what I mean. So yeah, yeah, I, th- I agree with the way you frame that. It's like, it's when ideas die that they can become more important. Yeah. I guess that that's it's kind of interesting that when you, you talk about the the potential, I guess, of, of maybe when you were talking about the the risks to the hospitality industry, at least that there's this that, that COVID has this there's, there's, a, there's a certain potential there that it would be an existential risk. Is I kind of can almost see where it's coming from, and I, and this is kind of connected to this point on acceleration, so maybe and this kind of familiar, but. If I can kind of see where that thinking is coming from, it's it's the it's it's kind of in the terms that you put in your own book, right? That it's it's, it's just going to curtail our potential. And I guess that maybe the one thing that I was curious about that maybe extends this to what I think is this what Mark was so obsessed with in with post-capitalist desire, but even in capitalist realism, that sense that the end of the world is easy to imagine the end of capitalism. How much do you see that kind of potential being so intrinsically tied up with capitalism that actually the potential of capitalism is our own potential? And do you think that maybe that's actually a limiting factor on how we are thinking about these kinds of, yeah, these threats that might not extinguish? I mean, because in that sense, it kind of inverts the point, right, that we actually think of the the end of capitalism as an extinction event, rather than actually what could come from beyond that. Do you see that as maybe being how we're thinking about COVID is maybe symptomatic of that we don't actually appreciate the full scales of, of what an existential risk would be and maybe why that's a reason for actually grasping it in, in its sort of real, in the real, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that is one of the uh, obstructions to thinking about it seriously is that, yeah, there's this, this cognitive bias, uh, scope neglect. So the larger something is in terms of scale, like often, often numbers, the less good we are at like, 
noticing distinctions between you know between with with things within that kind of scale so like if something's really huge we won't really notice for example many people don't really know like the the aren't sensitive to the distinction between a million and a billion even though it's like way more significant to the distinction between one and three but we're far more familiar with that so like you know so it's like there's this thing that we yeah this thing that we have and it, it applies to moral severities as well yeah we often conflate when i say we i mean the discursive sphere more like broadly there's often a conflation of the end of us in terms of some recognitive we whatever it is however that's that's constructed the end of the west or the end of some historical continuity the end of civilization but not humanity these things are all conflated because of scope neglect i think like um you know uh, our mind kind of staggers in the vicinity of these like horrible outcomes so much that we will miss the very consequential distinctions between certain levels of severity so that's why i think the term existential risk is like is really useful because in its original definition uh it's like you know any any risk that could cause human extinction or the irre- irreversible curtailment of uh, our potential and i think yeah that's that's a really useful thing to think about i mean one of the ways of putting that really clearly into view is that it's not just the loss of humanity so the loss of like you know me you us uh you know our, our our kind of meat sacks and you know our kind of you know the frustrated preference of the fact that most of us want to continue to exist tomorrow it's a lot more than that it's the it's the wastage of all human potential forever and ever so it's the wastage of all of our ability to get to correct the past and therefore get better and i think that that's like something that we miss when we conflate all of those different levels of and worst case scenario outcomes so yeah i mean wh- one of the first places i've seen someone arguing this is bertrand russell in the cold war like very early cold war and he in a in a kind of politicized context where he was saying we need to like not re- retaliate to a nuclear uh, attack uh, even if it causes the instatement of some totalitarian soviet global regime because that's the fall of a civilization but a continuation of history i guess you could kind of put it like that whereas you know retaliating escalation of a nuclear conflict could cause outright extinction and that's the end of history forever so basically his point being that like even if this creates some dark ages of like totalitarian um world government that's reversible whereas like extinction absolutely isn't and yeah i think that that's something that can get missed a lot you know in the tendency to mix up like the tendency to think of like post-apocalyptic films is to do with human extinction in any sense because like i said earlier they're not so i think yes we should keep in mind that it's about like it's not just about the loss of humans or humanity it's about the loss of our potential i found it in really stark terms when i was actually re-watching i don't know why the Amazon Prime film called Greenland with uh, Jared Butler in about like an, a, a supposedly extinction level event of a, an asteroid or meteorite, whatever, something from space hitting us. And before that, I'd watched The Day After Tomorrow for the first time since I think in a long, long time. But anyway, there was, there was a point in at The Day After Tomorrow that like I'd never noticed before. It's really inconsequential, like maybe five seconds of dialogue where um, because they know that this giant freeze is coming from the north, everyone's heading south, and so based the majority of the U.S. is like there's this irony that the 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 U.S. Mexico border tension has been reversed, and it's all the Americans trying to get into Mexico, and there's this like point where this newsreader says that 
the US and Mexico governments have come to a deal. Mexico will let in the Americans, and in return, America will just wipe all of Mexico's debt. <laughs> and it, like, it, 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 it just happens. It's over in like a, a just a, a few seconds. It's like a con- inconsequential detail. But I couldn't imagine how anyone would actually think like that when you're kind of at that level of total, of, of you know, genuine impending doom, where the whole of the northern hemisphere is being like, you know, we're entering a new ice age. That kind of extremity, and and we're still thinking along the lines of, well, okay, we'll cancel your debt. We'll be the gracious ones if you let us come and, and, and live in the global south. And but maybe I don't know. Do you think that's something that people actually think in your sense of like having been so well versed in the history of this kind of thinking? I can't imagine that that's or you know is that maybe a sign of the, that we've kind of moved on from that strange sort of equivalence, even that that would be a bargaining chip. I mean. <laughs> like, because I guess that's partly, I guess that's what you're, that's what I kind of hear and what you're saying, like, you know, that the, 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 we should, surely the common sense thing is that we would just, yeah, it's the, it's the, the preservation of human potential as, a, you know, as a civilization is obviously reaches above everything. But do we live in an age still where debt would be a, a bargaining chip for allowing that, allowing civilization to continue. Like, I don't know if that's going to be a sign of 2002 Hollywood or whatever year it was, or, you know, is it, how do you see that sort of thinking playing a part in, and even does it anymore? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I watched, um, I watched it as well. Cause it was, I think it was, it was on a Christmas. So I, I, yeah. So that, that, it was the first time I'd seen it since it came out. And yeah, that, that struck me as very strange as well, but I'd missed it. Like you say, it was completely inconsequential. I'd missed that piece of dialogue and I was watching it with my sister and I was like, what, what, hang on, what's, ha- why, what, what's happening here? And she was like, oh, like 10 minutes ago, they were just like, we'll wipe off all of the debt. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I really don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of just completely ridiculous. <laughs> but I, one of the interest, yeah, I guess it's that when I say, you know, kind of this correcting the errors of the past, it's kind of a quite perverse way of doing it. It's like wiping off the historic debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you just hope that that wouldn't be a, a, a consideration at that point. And maybe that's, yeah, maybe that's, we are in that world now that it makes sense that that would, capitalism which should be the first thing to fall off and the last thing that we can, um, yeah, persevere with our potential in other ways. But yeah, that, that our human potential isn't, because I, I guess that's it. Maybe that's the, when I was thinking about this, that's what I maybe thought, maybe we've come full circle already. But that's kind of what I thought. Maybe there's, if there's a takeaway from either of our books that maybe both are, can be seen as a bit bleak, at least egress. I think Post Capitalist Desire is hopefully a more joyful and hopeful reading experience, but dealing with maybe whether it's personal or cosmological grief and the sort of entanglements of the two, I kind of felt like that's maybe a nice, especially considering the circumstances of all this that's going on at the moment, maybe that's a nice point to affirm that, yeah, that the human potential and the potential of capitalism are not coextensive. <laughs> and maybe that's something we're finally reaching that kind of point, I guess, right? Like that's the, the, with Extinction Rebellion, then a lot of conversations seem to be going that way. Maybe not as fast as they should be. I'm kind of remembering there was some tweet, was it this year or last year, that Extinction Rebellion was talking about not being, having any sort of ideological uh, preference. They were like, and they said, we're not socialists. We don't want to talk about that. And I've seen sort of things like anti-capitalism is anti-veganism. And there's these strange sort of, I don't know, like logical 
feedback loops and weird things happening that I see online, maybe because I'm just online too much. But um, I don't know. I feel like something's got to give and maybe that's maybe that's the thing that needs to give first and probably will give first. It seems like it's becoming a more and more untenable of an idea. But yeah, hopefully hopefully what you've done and hopefully what I've done can uh, contribute to that change in feeling at the time when we, meet, when we need it most. I don't know. I've certainly found your book to be a real... Um, despite what I expected going into it to be like a really hopeful and actually really like generative experience reading it, especially this time of all times. So thank you for that. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's, that's really great. To, yeah, it's really great. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I meant. Thank you. But it's, it's kind of what I meant when I was saying it might sound like so like lofty or, or almost idealist in a sense to, you know, to say that, Oh, our local interactions should be informed by the widest picture. But, you know, you can. This is. I think this is a good example of it. Is it's so easy, particularly in the current climate during lockdown, during you know this awful pandemic, but more broadly, you know, the cultural moment that you've been pointing to. It's very easy to kind of contract everything into like this is a very very immediate kind of temporal horizon. But you know, I think yeah, one of the things I wanted to just kind of point out in the book and. Well, yeah, is how capacious future history potentially is. What makes that meaningful is precisely the fact that it's uh, precarious. It's not just, oh, there's an infinity in front of us, there's an etern- eternity in front of us. And this is precisely what makes mortality and endings, as, as you point out, meaningful, is you know Sophie's un- untimely, horrendous death, and same with Marx, and the same with other you know loved ones that have passed, is what makes that so awful is that we can't just rely on eternity to produce all of those works that Sophie or Mark would have otherwise produced. We can't just like cash in our blank check of infinity uh, because it's it's up to us as a community to, to kind of realize those unrealized potentials. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's without that infinity in view, without that plenitude in view, it's what makes, it's, it's up to us to kind of fight against the forces of wasted opportunity whether they are, you know, on this like really cosmic level that I kind of think about in the final chapter where it's like sunlight going to waste is not actually morally neutral. It's like that could be used to make good things, could be used to make value. However you construe value, whether it be economic productivity or art, you know, vast, vast works of art. You can think about it as materialistic or idealistic as you want, but regardless, value always requires energy. That's a fundamental truth. So you can think about, you know, wasted opportunity in that really lofty kind of cosmological big picture sense, or you can think about it in the sense of these dead ends that we are unfortunately afflicted with existing in a universe that like has no responsiveness to what we want to happen. You know, death, terminality, wasted opportunity, wasted potential. These are all the byproducts of the fact that we live in a universe with no design. And yeah, I think we're here to give it some design. Uh, we don't know what it is ahead of time, but that's why future history, hopefully it'll continue long enough for us to figure out what that design should be. That feels like a really nice point to end on. I don't know about you, but that's lovely. Yeah, that's wicked. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, re- really fun. Yeah, and I, that was, yeah, that was, it was really great to chat. And yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. In next week's episode, Tariq Goddard will be speaking to Victoria Nelson about all things occult. If you don't want to miss that, make sure you subscribe. And finally, I'd like to say thank you to Samantha Doe, who mixes and edits the podcast, and Kristen Galano, who produced the soundtrack. <laughs>